What are you? Treasury? Foreign Asset Control? I'm in the CIA. What do you want from me? Your employers won't know you work for us. People you love won't know you do either. It's gonna get lonely, but it's how we like to do things. Come on, you can do better than that. I can, and I do, and so do the people in my unit. Which unit is that? The one that makes sure we don't get hit again. Welcome to Now Playing's Tom Clancy Movie Retrospective Series. You're not a field man, Jack. You never were. You are an analyst. Analyze that. Join us each week as we watch and review all the film adaptations of Tom Clancy's novels. Welcome to the CIA, sport. Hosted by Jacob. It is an honor to speak to you today. Stuart. No one understands this material better than you. And Arnie. Call it the way I see it, that's my job. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. There's a very real scenario here where we don't get out of this alive. Listener discretion is advised. Start the music. Today we're discussing the sum of all fears. And I hate math. I know. Sum is addition, though, so that's at least easy. At least it's not the product of all fears or the numerator or denominator of all fears. Oh, see, I'm not so good at English, so I thought it was just like some of the fears. (laughs) Not all of them. Starring Ben Affleck. Morgan Freeman, James Cromwell, Liev Schreiber, Alan Bates, Philip Baker Hall, Ron Rifkin, Bruce McGill, directed by Phil Alden Robinson. This is the now playing co-host who's always ready to take it to DEFCON 1, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who is to be described as robust and healthy, Jacob. That was actually a really, really funny moment. It was. Because <laughs> I think we're living through someone that demands that as well as leader of the free world. <laughs> Tom Clancy, post 9-11. This is the movie that takes him completely out of the 80s. And you can't take the 80s out of Tom Clancy. It's really, really hard. That man loved his Cold War. This is still a plot about Russia. I don't know how much out of the 80s we could get with Clancy. And it's worth pointing out before we get too far into the new millennium, there were a couple of Tom Clancy projects, that's what I'll refer to them as, adaptations, maybe, uh, that we could have included in this series that came out in the 90s. TV movies. Do they star Jack Ryan as the character? They don't star Jack Ryan, and despite the fact that it says Tom Clancy on the covers of these books... Oh, these are the ghost-written ones, right? He did not write them, yes. It happens in publishing. You know, like, there's authors that... V.C. Andrews, like, she's still putting out books, and she's been dead for 30 years. Like, once you your name becomes a brand, then they can just sell it off and and you're James Patterson and you've got 80 books coming out in a year and you didn't write any of them. And that started happening for Tom Clancy. They created TV miniseries almost really as a way of promoting new book series. The first one, eight months after Clear and Present Danger, Tom Clancy's Op Center. I've never heard of this. What network was it? It was NBC, two nights in February. Was that sweeps? I'm not sure. Yes, February is sweeps and then May is final sweeps, season finale sweeps. Right. And so what is the TV movie equivalent in the 90s? Like, who would be if you can't get Harrison Ford and you can't? Well, come on, Benjamin Bratt, right? (laughs) (laughs) Chris Noth wouldn't have been the worst choice. He'd be better than Benjamin Bratt if we're picking from the Law and Order crowd. How about Harry Hamlin? He was begging for a job after L.A. Law was over. 
Yeah, he was hopping around TV and married to Lisa Renna. Yeah, exactly. They got him, Carl Weathers, and Wilford Brimley to form some kind of crisis management team that works directly for the president. They answer to nobody else, and they run around the world solving problems like Russian nukes that go missing in Ukraine. Directed, by the way, right after he got fired from Tommyknockers, Louis Teague decides <laughs> this is his next project. So... Better than Tommy Knockers? Not as good? I can't find it. I literally, I, I couldn't find it streaming. It looked like it was only released on VHS. And I was like, fuck it. I don't need to know this badly. And again, this is based on a book series that has Tom Clancy's name, but he didn't write anything about it. And it's still being written to this day. The new chapter comes out next month. Yeah, Clancy is dead at this point. Is his name still showing up on those books? All the time. Yes, you better <laughs> believe it. I guess it's Tom Clancy's op center. That's exactly right. And just as it's Tom Clancy's net force. And this one I did see. ABC <laughs> miniseries in February 1999. Is this about hacking? Are they, are they on the internet? Oh, you better believe it. It's sci-fi. <laughs> oh, set no. in the futuristic 2005. Wait a sec. Sci-fi network or sci-fi like it's science fiction? The genre. <laughs> yeah. ABC miniseries. Okay. Science fiction genre. The internet is now policed by Scott Back and a squadron of jargon-spouting idiots wearing funny helmets and shooting lasers. So instead of Space Force, we got Net Force. Yes. Can I just say somebody should police the internet? Well, yeah, but to, if only to get Lonnie Anderson, she's running a, a brothel of cyber hookers. Judge Reinhold is the hacker villain. Can I watch this one? Does this one exist somewhere? It's on YouTube. Yeah, Chris Christopherson, he's only seen in virtual reality. He's kind of like the, the Charlie of their, you know, angels. And he they have like this <laughs> Minecraft Chris Christopherson trying to like give them advice. But then the twist, uh, you mind if I spoil it? Go for it. It's only going to make it sound better. He's the real bad guy, and he's breaking into the Oval Office to destroy the internet, because that's where the internet is. <laughs> well, that's where Al Gore created it, right? It's exactly. I think that's who... He's really going to trigger those libs if he destroys Al Gore's creation. <laughs> yeah, if you have any kind of nostalgia for how much we didn't understand about cyber everything. Yeah, this sounds kind of amazing, and it's Scott Bakula? Yeah, yeah, poor Scott Bakula. After Color of Night, it just got worse and worse for him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hysterical. But it, it, two nights, three hours long, eh, the, the laughter trails off. I'll put it that way. It's, you know, spot watch it. Use the fast forward button liberally. But yeah, it really made me laugh. And again, Clancy, I hope it was a big check, but he did not write this book series. And no, the internet never will be policed in this fashion. Those ghost writers don't research as hardcore as Clancy does, apparently. <laughs> apparently not. When did Clancy die? 2013. Okay, I had no idea he was dead. Yeah, we'll talk about it next week. But right now, yeah, he was more or less done with Hollywood. But he was okay with Harrison Ford continuing in the Jack Ryan role. He was willing to take that paycheck again. And they were going to make some of all fears with Philip Nice as the director and Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan. But they could never find the right script and they could never find the hole in Harrison Ford's schedule before everyone just decided, eh, let's forget it. And so Paramount was ready to shelve this whole thing. They, Without Harrison Ford, they saw no future in Jack Ryan. It was Ben Affleck who actually called and said, hey, you know, I'm from Boston and I could do this and I won an Oscar. So they rewrote the movie. He won an Oscar for writing. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> 
Cage, does he want to write the sum of all beers? No, he wants a franchise to star in. That's what he wants. Yeah, he was on the set of Pearl Harbor, which Alec Baldwin was also on that set. Alec apparently gave him his blessing. He called Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford said, sure, kid, go, good luck, you know, whatever. However, Harrison Ford dismisses the project. And he said, I want in. And so the reason why we don't continue on with the threads that were dangling from Clear and Present Danger and have this reboot is because... Ben Affleck was the last minute save on a franchise that was being put into turnabout. I guess they really didn't want to just do the James Bond thing and like, here's the next story. It's a different actor. We get it, but we're just going to continue. I don't think it ever made enough money to really get people invested in it. And I guess that's literal and figurative financial and emotional investment. Yeah, it wasn't until this movie when I'd see little things on, I don't know, Entertainment Tonight or whatever that I learned that, oh, Harrison Ford and Alec Baldwin, they were the same character. Like, this is when I learned that, like, Jack Ryan was a thing during all the promotion for this film. Yeah, I think Tom Clancy is a big name everyone knows. I don't feel like Jack Ryan is. I don't think people have an association with who Jack Ryan is. They know Tom Clancy. And so, yeah, you could you could just assume that it was an entirely different character in a techno-thriller world where hopefully they're not policing the internet, but you get the point. <laughs> it's going to have a lot of gadgetry and jargon and, and people strategizing in war rooms. So was this because I remember another thing that hit the news with this movie when it came out post 9-11. All our listeners, take your shots. We're going to talk probably a lot about 9-11. I know that's a thing <laughs> on the show, but I mean, this one, uh, you, you can't avoid it. Was this in production prior? It had to be, right? It was made before 9-11. They finished and wrapped this in the first half of 2001. So nothing was changed because I remember there was a big thing, you know, probably on Fox News where they were really upset. People had claimed that the bad guys in this, that they were changed to Nazis because we didn't want to offend Muslims and accuse all Muslims of terrorist acts. And so it was changed to white Nazis instead as the bad guy. I I remember, I'm not going to say a big controversy, but I remember political talking heads on, on cable news complaining about that. Yeah. Rumor number one was once 9-11 happened, they had to go back and reshoot a lot because they felt the movie was too inflammatory and they took things out that were too similar. That is not true. Not a single thing was added after they finished in June 2001. The movie that they made was the same as what they released in May 2002. Now, you ask, did they ever change the villain? I've read in some places where they the villain of the book was a Muslim Islamic extremist and now we have to deal with Nazis. Well, <laughs> let me just put it this way. I read that book. Well, in 2020, that's all of a sudden sadly relevant again. Yes. Uh, lots of thoughts on this, but let's just start with the fact that that book is 800 pages long, the longest <laughs> Jack Ryan adventure so far. And there are a lot of villains. There are a lot of plots. You won't even believe how many things happen before the dirty bomb goes off at the Super Bowl. Like, it's 600 or 700 pages before we get to anything that this movie is about. Wow. Is it good? I mean, you gotta work for 800 pages. Like, The Stand and some of that Stephen King stuff I've read. You gotta be invested for 800 pages. It's Tom Clancy's uh, Avengers Endgame. He is bringing it all. Everyone that had ever appeared, the IRA terrorists are in it. Robbie, Sam Jackson's character. (laughs) The Red October technology comes back. I was gonna say, does Sean Connery, like, take the sub out for an adventure and defeat some of those bad guys? 
no, now the Soviets are hunting one of our subs because we've pimped it like the Red October. And even the guy that, like I pointed out, he's really important. The FBI guy that got shot up in clear and present danger in that alley with Harrison Ford driving backwards. Scott Glenn's character. Like all these people that I've, I've pointed out throughout these movies going, you know, they get a lot of time in the books. They all come back in this giant epic story that really is about the post-Soviet world. I mean, the book came out in 1991, and I think Tom Clancy was just stunned to think he could no longer make Russians the villain. Like, what was the world going to look like? And so he just went crazy. And so there are just subplots about Japanese and Mexico and shipping giant trees to Buddhist temples and you name a country (laughs) and they appear in it. It's sprawling. It's big. It's messy. And I pity anybody. It's unadaptable. There is no way in 2002, particularly with a new young actor stepping into the role saying this is the reboot of Jack Ryan and we've never seen him before, that they could tell the story in the book. No way. But I will point out to the conspiracy theory that this was neutered for PC reasons. There was one terminally ill Muslim who was a part of a super team of villains that had the bomb. He was going to use it for his own ideology, but he was working alongside a Native American and a German named Gunter Bach. So there's like a Ewan of evil in this? Kind of, kind of. The, the German isn't a Nazi. He's Bader Mainhoff. I don't know if people know that, but in the 70s, it was a radical socialist group that blew up a lot of people in West Germany. And so I think they make it Nazis here because like you say, Bader Mainhoff and... Well, we talked... Isn't that what that Suspiria reboot was all about? Where we were totally confused? <laughs> yes. Good memory. Exactly. If you want to know about them, there was a really good movie called Bader Mainhoff Complex and Suspiria touched on it as well. But those movies aren't very popular. And I do think that they they ended up deciding on Nazis because they felt like, well, honor the fact that most of the villainy is done by a German and Germany and Nazis. That's just something the public understands. So, yes, the director, when he came on board, said, let's not do Muslims. But it wasn't like a huge betrayal of the theme of the book. But this is all pre-9-11. So, again, it it wasn't for PC reasons. No, no. Again, I think he was trying to condense of all the villains who gets the most screen time. And it's that German. So let's just make it a German villain. And let's keep the idea that he's pitting the East and the West against each other. The idea is that he will prey upon the prejudices that America has about, we can't call it the Soviet Union anymore, but that empire as it's falling apart, we're just so suspicious of them that they can use that. If we set off a bomb on American soil, the Americans are just going to naturally assume Russia. Russia did it. And so they've retained that plot for this movie, even though in 2002, I don't know how many people were even thinking about Russia. No, I mean, I, th- I think about Russia now, but I'm putting this movie in context. I'll just say it right now. It doesn't make sense to me. I just have to go with this is a fictional America and a fictional Russia with fictional presidents where things are different. If it wasn't Clancy, I could do that. That's, the problem is it's Clancy and he's supposed to tap into this real world stuff. Yeah, but this isn't President Bush and this isn't Putin or whoever was Ramir back in 01 and 02. Yeltsin would be coming in. Yeah, I I can't remember. I'm not a expert of Russian anything, let alone Russian politics or Russian history. So I just have to take it as because we have a fictional president and a fictional new Russian leader, 
that I go with this as it is. I did see this in theaters, and I also saw Changing Lanes in theaters, and when we were discussing doing this movie, I'm like, Sam Jackson's in another Jack Ryan film? I got those two <laughs> kind of confused. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that movie. Okay. But 9-11 was a big event in all of our lives, and because of what happened to the economy after 9-11, I was still out of work when this came out. I was newly married. I mean, we're talking 2002, Mm -hmm. and this is coming out two weeks after Attack of the Clones, Star Wars, and four weeks after Spider-Man. So I certainly didn't see this opening weekend. I was probably still going to Attack of the Clones a few more times, but we saw this sometime in June in theaters, and I know we were a little bit hesitant because we knew a nuke went off on U.S. soil, and we were touchy about that. Yeah, I didn't see this one in theaters, but I talked about my long college career before. It took me like eight years to finally get my degree, but I was like 2001, 9-11 hits. I'm a political science major. Like Every class was different after that day, like the, the conversation we were having. So I was interested in seeing this. I didn't catch it in theaters, but I did rent it when it came out. And so again, just placing where we were at that time and trying to watch this movie about a terrorist attack on American soil. It was an interesting exercise. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I rented it too. I I just didn't see a lot of these kinds of movies in theaters anyway. It wasn't anything particularly pro or anti Tom Clancy or Jack Ryan. It just it was a movie you rent. It's not a movie you go to the movie theater to see. But it people did. It was a big hit. It's worth pointing out. It made the same box office as Red October and Clear and Present Danger. It was just. I mean, I guess. I mean, a decade later. So <laughs> yeah, movie ticket prices are higher. So in that respect, you can say less people went and saw it. But it still made the money it needed. It had a PG-13 rating, so again, it I think that helped broaden the audience. It had a video game, first one since Hunt for Red October. They actually, Tom Clancy's name by this point was big in the video game world. Yeah, Rainbow Six had come out by this point, hadn't it? And that's what this game was. They were like, you're part of a sniper team under Clark, and you go on all these various missions to kill everyone responsible for setting off the nuke at the football stadium. <laughs> so not Jack Ryan, you're not analyzing anything, you're just shooting people. Yeah, right. You could never make a game about what Jack Ryan does in these books. You can make a game in which, yeah, these kill squads show up and and do the fun stuff that, again, Jack Ryan's analysis has led the U.S. president to conclude we must do. I think I also saw this because of the star, Ben Affleck. I'm kind of cynical about him now. Oh, see, I was much more cynical about him then. I felt like he was the pretty boy that wrote on Matt Damon's coattails. Totally, yes. I, he sharpened the pencils and Matt Damon wrote Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not all that wrong, but remember, I had a very strong Kevin Smith phase that was only starting to wane in 2002, and I viewed Affleck as like a successful alumni of the View Askew. He was in a bunch of those films, wasn't he? Yeah, he was in Mallrats and then the star of Chasing Amy, Dogma, and then he cameoed in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back and That's all right. of them. I mean, he he and Kevin Smith are really good friends. Like, he'd show up on the Kevin Smith podcast all the time. I don't even want to get into what I know about Kevin Smith and Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner tension. Like... I don't want to get Ooh, into that. You, you got some dirt to dig. <laughs> well, we will at some point. I do know that it has been requested that we cover Clerks for a patron show. So you, you can save it for that. But Affleck isn't in Clerks. But I was pretty big on Affleck because of I like Shakespeare in love quite a bit. I was really big on Armageddon. 
Chasing Amy. Chasing Amy, yes, of course. I was I still think that's Smith's best film and one that I haven't gone back to it in a decade, but looking back of all his films, that's the one I feel I would green arrow out of all of them. But I saw Pearl Harbor in theaters. I already mentioned I saw Changing Lanes in theaters. I was watching Boiler Room and Bounce. I mean, it was not pretty. <laughs> There was no way you were going to miss this again. And he got a big payday for this. It was 10 million. That's that's why. I mean, I'm sure he wanted to have a, you know, be Jack Ryan and all of that. But I'm sure most attractive of all is I'm going to have a major franchise where I get paid 10 million dollars every time I show up. And that's funny because he didn't get paycheck out until the next year. <laughs> yeah, and the, you point out Paycheck. This was also around the JLo years and Geely, and it wasn't long before Ben Affleck was no longer considered the It Boy, and a reason, I suppose, why they didn't make another Jack Ryan with him. It was less than one year after this. It was Valentine's Day 2003 that he was Daredevil. Hmm, woof. And that was, I think, the start of the end. Can I point out one other important thing that's happening around this time? This movie comes out two weeks before The Born Identity. And that is really the spy movie series that's going to change the genre. Maybe not with the first film, but certainly with those sequels. Matt Damon is going to steal Ben Affleck's thunder. <laughs> and I do feel like... That must have been an uncomfortable Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to just be Tom Clancy's Some of All Fears. This was the hanger-on from the 90s. This was the old, and the new was coming in with Bourne. I do feel like this was the end of something and not the beginning of something, even though it's a reboot. And I couldn't remember coming in. I mean, we talked about it on the last show, Jack Ryan's ever-fluctuating age. He was 30s, he was 50s, and now he was going to be Ben Affleck, much, much younger. But I didn't know if this was a prequel or a reboot. Coming in, it's pretty evident in the first few minutes it's a reboot, but I thought it might be a Red October prequel. You know, young Jack Ryan. Some people on the set talk about it like that. They thought that you could see it that way, but of course, you'd have to have some time travel or something like no that really isn't possible but okay cute that you want to keep it all in continuity because you worked on all the films yeah those years don't work out we're gonna get definitive years in this one yeah i was curious about that i was like is this gonna be a period piece i remembered nothing about this except a nuke going off on u.s soil and ben affleck I, again i even forgot who the co-stars were in this i was wondering is this going to be an 80s period piece i really thought it could go back there Especially with Russians as the bad guy. I think they could have done that, but I do think that this movie's whole get, the whole thing, the only thing I remember about watching it was the idea that they actually dared to do it and they had this terrorist attack and they followed through on it. Yeah, that that was part of the draw. I mean, there was United 93. That was about a, a real life situation to do with 9-11, but it felt like Hollywood did not want to touch that kind of stuff right after there. And I don't think we wanted to have that kind of entertainment. And this one felt daring. I, I guess I'll be nice and put it that sure. way. It felt daring that it was going to tackle something in 2002, I believe this is taking place, with a terrorist attack on... On America, like, I don't know how many people wanted that at the time. It wasn't set up to be. It was not set up to speak to the moment, but it had the amazing opportunity. Finally, Jack Ryan had something to say about the present day, and that did make it exciting. Yeah, isn't this Clancy's time to shine? Like, talk about the the intelligent failures that we're going to learn about in the 9-11 Commission Report. Like, he could get into all that stuff, and I think that's almost what you're expecting because of when this came out. Yeah, I think that was the expectation, why it was a hit. How well it does that? Well, let's get into it. Arnie, give him the plot. 
Jack Ryan is a green CIA analyst played by Ben Affleck, but Ryan is thrust into the spotlight when a new Russian president is appointed, Alexander Nemirov, played by Syrian Hines. Ryan wrote a report on Nemirov, who was a Russian politician most ignored. Relations with Nemirov and U.S. President Fowler, played by James Cromwell, start off cordial, but things start to get dicey when a third party begins a nefarious plan. Austrian Richard Dressler, played by Alan Bates, has designs of world conquest and fascist rule. He knows his forces can't defeat the U.S. and Russia, so Dressler sets them against each other. Due to Russian hostility in Chechnya, Dressler gets a Russian general to bomb Chechnya's capital with gas weapons, an act Nemirov must take credit for lest he look weak. That puts the U.S. on edge, and Dressler pushes them further. He's come across a rogue nuclear weapon, hired three Russian scientists to arm it, and detonated it in Baltimore. With the Russians implicated, another Russian general on Dressler's payroll orders his fighters to attack a U.S. air carrier. This causes rapid escalation until the U.S. president has given the order to launch the nukes at Russia. But during all of this, this is supposed to be a Jack Ryan movie. <laughs> Ryan has been investigating and finds out that the Baltimore A-bomb was American-made. With the aid of CIA wetworks man John Clark, played by Liev Schreiber, they trace the bomb to Dressler. But the president won't listen to Ryan, so with the aid of a U.S. general, Ryan communicates directly with Nemirov and convinces Nemirov to stand down as an act of good faith. Nemirov agrees in the hopes of avoiding nuclear war, and President Fowler follows suit. The U.S. and Russia sign a new nuclear deproliferation agreement, while the U.S. and Russian agents assassinate Dressler and all of his associates, and credits roll. As we start, we start just as we do in the book. It's actually one of the few things that is just like the book. We begin in 1973 with an Israeli jet crash and a nuke on board. This is almost true. It is apparently, it was protocol for these Israeli jets during those skirmishes in the Golan Heights to yeah, carry nukes on their person, but no jet went down and left a nuke behind. It, this broken arrow scenario is fiction from Clancy. Yeah, I, th this made me wonder. Like, this thing goes down, and it's going to sit there for almost 30 years and not be found. I I don't know. It, it feels like people would have been looking for a Israeli jet that had been shot down. If nothing else, you'd want to collect the body, right? But uh, maybe, yes. maybe a point that gets lost here is it happened in the Golan Heights. And borders are very precarious in the Middle East. You know, one minute, like, this neighborhood is Palestinian, the next minute it's Israeli. And I think what happened was the border fight quickly changed and the Israelis couldn't go and reclaim it once they realized it was there. It would have been too risky to cross into enemy territory. That's a great historical reason. I legitimately thought it was because the pilot didn't have a chance to radio anything because he was distracted driving. He dropped a picture of his family, yes. bent over to pick it up, <laughs> and then was shot down. He didn't even see it coming. I, I really thought he just didn't have a chance to radio for help. Is that what distracted him? Or was it this opening music? I don't know. Is this Enya? I don't know what this wailing woman <laughs> is singing. I don't know why it's opening this movie, though. It's so distracting. I kind of like it. I Phil Jordan Alden. He is an unusual choice to be the director. It's worth pointing out the person at the helm of this replacing Philip Noyce is someone that made Field of Dreams and Sneakers 
and not a whole lot else. Sneakers, a better spy film than The Sum of All Fears. I love that movie. A better force net than force net? <laughs> I haven't seen Sneakers, and I don't remember Field of Dreams, but I do remember crying. I remember loving it at the time. He seemed like someone that would be sentimental. You, you cast for drama. And so, yeah, to have him in a techno thriller, if the thought was we're going to Michael Bay this up, Casting him as the director is insisting, oh, no, 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 no. This will be as drab and as uh, technical as all the previous exercises. And so, yeah, he's created this sort of artsy shot of the bomb coming out and underlining this broken arrow plot. It makes you pay attention to the fact that there is this nuke lying around and that it gets recovered by, yeah, just some Syrians haphazardly 29 years later. And what are they going to do? They're just going to sell it to an arms dealer. They're going to pass this along and it will be the MacGuffin for this movie. I think it's right to find a focus because, again, I want to stress in the book, this was one of about five or six different plots. Oh, my God. (laughs) Does the book itself have an overarching plot? Again, the fall of the Soviet Union has left the world in chaos. And so it's hard to manage what's going on, and it's easy to suspect the worst of each other. And so you have a lot of infighting. A lot of the infighting, frankly, is with Jack Ryan and the president. The president is banging one of his new secretaries, and she doesn't like Jack Ryan, and so she's trying to get the president to fire him. And so it's kind of soap opera. You'd be surprised at how much it was about bedroom politics. Well, they had to still be pissed, because this is a sequel to Clear and Present Danger, right? Where he, like went and testified against the president? Only in the movie. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that it had that different an ending. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's not a whole lot about the last movie and the last book that matched up, which, again, makes the challenge of adapting this next book impossible. You just take the stuff that makes sense, and I think it's right to just say, let's make it about a broken arrow. Let's make it about a missile that got lost in the bureaucratic shuffle, and here it is popping up in 2002 and falling in the hands of an arms dealer who doesn't have any sense of loyalty about who he sells it to as long as he gets $50 million. Yeah, I love that he buys it. He turned quite a profit on that thing. He buys it for 400 bucks because he tells the seller, oh, it's, I'll buy it just because it's a relic. It actually won't blow up or anything, so it's not worth that much. I feel sorry for your son. Here's $400. Yeah. <laughs> but... I think that's an interesting idea. Make this about, you know, we, I, I think you could get into something how we're, we're there to help Israel out. And now that's turned on us. There's like some real life things you could mirror and that kind of story. But quickly, I'm going to be told that that's not what this is really about. Cause we're going to get this fake out scene. That's obvious. It's a fake out with the American president going into a bunker and they're doing some kind of exercise. They want you to think it's real, but it's really just an exercise in case the Russians launch the nukes. Well, it's introducing us to the real star of the film, right? James Cromwell. Well, yes, I always like a good James Cromwell movie. Yeah, I like Babe. Yes, <laughs> I thought they could be fooling us. I actually will say I wasn't sure. I thought they could pull one of those inner titles three weeks earlier thing. You know, they do it in TV all the time where we'll show you a really exciting part where everything's melting down and then we'll go back to see how it all started. Like this could be the climax of the film. Yeah, because we all know a nuke's going to go off at some point. I mean, that that felt like it was in the marketing that, hey, this is going to happen. So I, I guess they could have done a flashback. And that would have been a really cool way to go, I think. Actually cooler than what we see here. But I never thought this was going to be the nuke that went off in the movie because I knew it was on nuclear soil and no president would, well, outside of certain movies, no president would nuke his own soil. It is a very fake 
thing. I like how it ends because the president gets a call from his wife. He's like, can we do this later? And then the best line of the whole movie when he's leaving. Well, this is fake because if the shit hits the fan, I'm not going underground. This president will not hide in a bunker. That is some foreshadowing. He will not be in a bunker when everything goes down. Not only that, but we have Morgan Freeman here, which, I, again, I think good casting. There's so many generic bureaucratic people. You want to have an actor that you instantly like, and I just think of Morgan Freeman as someone that has that credibility. I know this is a prequel. Why isn't he just Greer? Like, now I gotta learn a new name. And Tom Clancy was really mad because this character was very minor in his book, and he has his own commentary track. It's worth pointing out, there were two commentary tracks on this Blu-ray, and Tom Clancy and the director were on one, and let me just tell you, it was painful. <laughs> Tom Clancy spent the whole time going, that's stupid! That would never happen! That's that's not how it would. I mean, I'm worried about for myself. I'm like, are we like this? I know we can like get into the weeds and pick on movies, but like, hopefully I never scream Red Arrow because that guy wouldn't be wearing socks. Tom Clancy got mad at one point that somebody was wearing socks when they shouldn't be. <laughs> This is amazing. I was going to bring this up later because when I was going through, I was going through on IMDb, the quotes, just like, okay, looking for an opening line. Is there anything I missed that would be better than what I wrote down? And there was a quote. It's the one where Jack Ryan is going to go, oh, you're missing three scientists. And then it says the response is by Clancy. Like they actually have a quote from the DVD commentary in IMDb quotes where Clancy's like, yeah, he's just very lucky. This is a like I could see the despise just in the quote that got onto IMDb. <laughs> somehow it's an amazing commentary and i usually don't say that usually commentaries are either completely uninteresting or sporadically have a little bit of nuggets but this one it had fire in it because again the director <laughs> was trying to be civil and he knew that clancy was mad that they had changed all about this so he had to just sit there and take all of the things that weren't true to form and all of that but like it got so heated at one point clancy was like well you know only a democrat would start nuclear war because republicans would never do that and you could see that like the director was like an admitted liberal. He was like, we need to talk about this off air. <laughs> you, you could just see it like snapping, melting away. I was like, ooh, this is, this is more spicy than this movie. They must have just known from the beginning because I did read on Wiki that the commentary opens with him saying, this is Tom Clancy, author of the book this movie completely ignored. Oh, he was mad. And again, he, they call it jokes like he was joking, but it that little IMDb quote I read did not feel like joking. He finished the commentary by saying, you did a pretty good job, Phil, but it didn't feel that way. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get the sense that he was happy with this adaptation. Pretty good job, Phil, is not a great way to compliment a director at all, knowing the blood, sweat, and tears that any director, even bad ones, put in their movie. Pretty good job is backhanded at best. And I'm sure he wanted to scream back, well, I had to adapt your shit book. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, like he couldn't say what really needed to be said of like, what, you really want me to include the shit about the Buddhist monastery? But you mentioned Morgan Freeman in here. I like that James Cromwell is surrounded by a cadre of, oh, it's that guy character actors. Every single person around him is somebody who I've seen elsewhere, and I'm able to keep track of it's that person, even if I don't quite remember that person's name. Right. And my whole point for bringing this all up was the idea that the joke is introduced here by Freeman that, like, maybe we should do this drill again and not make it Russians, because maybe in 2002 we just stopped seeing them as the most likely nuclear threat. 
And so that is something that they probably should have listened to, but they will quickly forget as we get into the plot of this movie. And we find out that the current Russian president is not healthy at all and dropping dead on the stairwell. I thought for sure that we were going to see Ben Affleck. The film quality, all the brown, the way that the outgoing or dying Russian president is speaking, I thought he was watching a Russian soap opera. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, he's learning Russian by watching bad TV. And then I realized it's a speech by the Russian president. Right. What they're setting up here is Zorkin is dead. Some new guy named Nemiroff that nobody saw coming will be his successor. And only Jack Ryan, a lowly guy in a cubicle deep in Langley, has any idea what makes this guy tick. And suddenly it makes this analyst that had no importance be super important. He's pulled out of bed with his girlfriend for this. Yeah, Kathy, who he's already with. I don't know this woman. I feel like she's set up to be like Miss Congeniality in the TV series of that movie. (laughs) Like she feels like fake Sandra Bullock. Who is she? She's the Benjamin Bratt of female roles. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Maybe. I don't know who she was, and so I it was took me a while to realize that this was the Kathy character and that where to want this, you know, this relationship to work out where he can't tell her what he's up to. Yeah, Bridget Moynihan, I mean, we've discussed her in John Wick. She cameos in that as a dead wife. <laughs> I did see that. I'm like, oh, so she's what he's watching on the iPhone that you see for about three seconds. I, at this point, had only seen her in Coyote Ugly. She, I don't really know from anything, though. She's she's a pretty face. Yes, she's not bringing anything to the party. And it's Kathy. We know how it goes for Kathy. Kathy's job is to be left at home and not get involved too much in the adventure. And so it's just not a very fun part. And I guess by in rebooting it, it allows us at least to have the game of how long will it be before he has to tell her what he really does. I think she knows that he he does something for the government, but she doesn't know CIA. He's a historian that works for a think tank. That's his story. That's a bad story. I mean, it sounds dull as hell, but yet I'd be like, what think tank discusses history? <laughs> you know, I I would dig into that over the span. They do say it's only been three dates, so I guess a shit cover story can work for three dates. Oh, really? Okay, you're right. Three dates can be in bed together, but I just it seems like they were very cozy. Usually it is date three. Date three is kind of the mark a lot of women carry, where if we're on three dates, then I can sleep with him. Uh, I, I'm kind of with you, Stuart, though. It does feel like they've been a- together longer in this. Again, with the prequels, this is just a problem with prequels. Don't throw in everything that, that the character is going to do later on in the other movies. Like, eat that stuff out. I don't need every single thing explained in one movie. And that uh, the fact that she's here and that, yeah, she doesn't play much of a part. I, I think he's going to worry about her later. She's still a doctor, and so it's going to keep her out. If she worked somewhere else in the government, even, maybe he could call her for some tips. Or if she were a hacker, you know, so, or, or had political or... Anything with her that would allow her to participate in a global political storyline would be helpful. But as a doctor, it just means that she's going to end up taking care of some radiated people at the end. She's not going to get to participate in cracking the case. I am very disappointed because 
as I mentioned in the previous two reviews, I felt like they tried to give Kathy something to do. And here, they don't even try. Yeah. Again, it's just some romantic comedy because I do think Affleck, he's more of a heartthrob than probably Harrison Ford was considered in 1994. And so they want to take advantage of the fact that he's so young. And man, he is so young here. He really... I guess this was the point where I wasn't watching his movies. I'm more of a fan of his work, you know, Argo or Gone Girl. Like, that's that's the Ben Affleck that I think about. So, like, to see him here, 29 years old, he, he looks like a kid. I didn't realize he was that young, but yeah, he does look like a kid, and he plays it like a kid. I mean, he shows up at the CIA, and he's in disheveled clothes. Everybody else is in suit and tie. Bedhead. Yeah, Morgan Freeman is just going to look at him and be exasperated. And see, I kind of like that about the Jack Ryan character. I got that a little bit with Alec Baldwin's performance. Didn't really get it with Harrison Ford, because that's not who he is, and he's like 20 years older, it feels like, in those films. But I, again, I've said it throughout this Jack Ryan series. If you're going to make a the nerd be your hero, I, I want them to feel like that. So I do like these little scenes when you just get all these analysts sitting around a cube, like debating the Russian leader's sex life or his health and all that. Like those kind of scenes. Like, yeah, that's what I imagine an analyst doing. And so I don't know. I don't mind that he's so young. It's going to be quite the adventure to break him in, though. Like it makes that whole Red October thing like seem like a, a a silly little weekend getaway compared to this. Doesn't Affleck, among all those other analysts, though, feel like the jock who's getting special tutoring from the nerds? That's the thing. He looks young, but yeah, it looks like he was playing football. He wasn't on the chess team. Yes, I, I agree with all of you here. I like, I actually think his youthful energy is helpful. I think, I mean, the history of the CIA, they did start as college nerds. I mean, to, to bring youth into this, yeah, I think that's a great thing to, to have and to give a series that, quite frankly, has always felt a little too stodgy. So that part about his performance is good, but he's got to do the hard work of becoming the man, right? This is the adventure that's going to forge him into being some kind of spy hero. And that part, the transformation, well, I don't know. We're going to see him attend some meetings, and eventually, yeah, he's going to be asked to go to Moscow to, to meet the man he wrote the paper about. I really like Morgan Freeman's speech to Jack Ryan when they're going in there. You know, he just, he gives this little speech about you're going to be asked for your analysis and advice, so you better know what you're talking about. Choose your words carefully. Don't be afraid to say you don't know. Don't make stuff up. I like this introduction to Jack Ryan going into a totally new level. I mean, he went from two to nine in his career here in the room he's walking into with the president's cabinet. Yeah, I like this briefing meeting he's going and he's like, oh, you've never been in a meeting like this. And it's got those like windows that turn like totally, they go from see-through to non-see-through when he walks in. It, it's a fun little scene. And it's a callback too. I mean, it was the big moment for Alec Baldwin as well, where he was being pulled out of a warehouse going through boxes. Hasn't that been in every one of these movies? I feel like that is a trope of Jack Ryan, that he's going to get pulled into a meeting with the president or some high up officials and told not to talk. And then, but he's such a boy scout, he's going to have to speak up and say something that's not popular. But yeah, I mean, I think what they're catching, I don't remember this being a part of the last two Harrison Ford movies. Like, he was too damn old to be in the scene. <laughs> right, yeah. People listened to that Jack Ryan. But here it's this kid and he could fade into the background and he holds an unpopular opinion. 
Everyone has the Cold War perspective that Russia is not to be believed, that this man must be a hardliner, that we really need to watch him and what he does with Chechnya. And he is the lone person, just like Baldwin was, to be like, no, he's he's defecting. He's not going to blast us. You know, he is a good guy. We can work with someone like this is, I think, the right thing to bring back from the first movie. And nobody ever believes him, though. And admittedly, they're given reason not to. But that is the single note they're going to play from this scene till the climax of the movie is nobody believes Jack Ryan. Right. It it works best that way because, again, he's a thinking man's action hero, right? So he's got to be smarter than everyone else. That means you're going to bump up against a lot of higher ups that just for whatever reasons, their political biases, their years of experience have clouded them to new perspectives. Yeah, we have a young guy that thinks in a new way, and he's going to get to take this field trip to Moscow. And that would be fun. I mean, I I kind of would be excited like he is to be meeting the man that he wrote the paper about, and maybe less excited about the fact that the man's like, yeah, I don't have affairs. Like, why did you write that about me? He's read the paper. Yeah, but Ryan calls him back, which I love. Like, well, that was your third year. (laughs) What about the first two? Yeah, some kind of fun interplay here. But I'll go ahead and say it. We kind of already said it. Like, Russia? Really? Particularly in 2002? Like, world events? You know, we were desperate to confront new threats. This movie wants to party like it's 1989. Like, it's just, it's so retro. I like the way, though, that here is being portrayed like we're on somewhat friendly ground with them. You know, where they're having the Americans over to walk through the nuclear missile factories because we have an agreement to ramp down nuke production and things. It's that we have an unstable friendship that is going to be destabilized further and... In summer of 2001, I'd be perfectly fine with that plot. In spring of 2002, it's a different world, but I'm not going to blame the film for it. It's To me, maybe it's because they're bad guys again, but you can always blame the Ruskies. Well, to be clear, the World Trade Center got attacked in 93. Like, we already knew about Bin Laden. Like, they just weren't successful with that car bomb. I mean, there were people writing books. I read a book in college before 9-11 that was written in the 90s by Thomas Friedman, where it's like, we got to keep an eye on this Bin Laden guys, people. Like, there's something dangerous about him. Like, people knew about the threat. I remember I first really paid attention to him because he was supposedly going to bomb the U.S. on New Year's Eve 1999, and I was in Times Square, and there was all the rumors he was going to bomb the Space Needle, but it might be in New York and everything. So we knew about him, but I never felt like they really made, outside of, you know, Libyan terrorists, I don't feel like they made Middle Easterns bad guys in films until after 9-11. I just feel like, I mean, you even called them friends or allies. Like, you're saying at this point that there isn't a lot of fear coming off the idea of relationships with Russia. Even Chechnya, that whole conflict was like early 90s. They're desperate to try and create more tension and animosity than I think they can get out of it. Yeah, and the fact that, again, sorry that you put this out just after 9-11 and it's about terrorist bombing on American soil. I can't divorce it from that context. We came together, more or less, the world to, like, fight terror. Like, there were the coalition of the willing. There's all that kind of stuff. Like, I didn't feel like we're side-eyeing Russia or old enemies from the Cold War or anything like that after 9-11. Like, just France. 
Yeah, we needed those freedom fries. We didn't all come together. I I, I hear what you're trying to say. <laughs> but we weren't starting wars with, we, we weren't saying, oh, France is going to bomb us next. I didn't feel like that was the threat. We were worried about anthrax and more terrorist attacks and dirty bombs. To the screenwriters and directors, I'll say credit. They decided to honor what Tom Clancy wrote by taking what was actual tension in 1991 and saying it was still going on enough in 2001 for this stuff to seem intriguing. When in fact, even if 9-11 hadn't happened, I don't feel like this would have felt very threatening at all. I just feel like Russians as a villain, like that's why Jack Ryan was doing other stuff with Colombian cartels and the IRA. Like it just, they don't work anymore. The one thing that doesn't work for me worse than the Russians is the real bad guy. This Dressler, who is he? What does he want in the end? He's going to get one speech about consolidating the Aryan nation and the Nazis and the right wing. Yeah, and those Nazis have come back in 2020. They are not unified, though. There are so many different factions like Boogaloo Boys. Like, I think they're Nazis because they think it's a funny joke. Like, I don't even understand all the different factions these days. He's apparently going to unite all them, but I don't get his endgame. He is villainous for villainous sake. He's underdeveloped. And if he is supposed to be the bad guy, if he's the Blofeld in all of this, I want more about him and we don't get it. Jack Ryan shouldn't have a Blofeld. Well, yeah, it's not Bond. You know, we use Bond because Bond defined the spy genre, but this was always supposed to be the more realistic version, right? Tom Clancy was going for something more geopolitical and not sex farce. And so, yeah, it's he's not a Bond villain, and I agree with you. It'd be a lot more fun if he was. I'd really love for him to, like, have a chained bear next to him or so. You know, just some <laughs> some of that camp tricks that just endear you instantly to a villain. A scar in a weird place, you know? You just want to have that stuff because it's shorthand and it makes it fun. And that's not Clancy. Clancy doesn't want to do that, so it makes it hard. The director did apologize on the commentary. He said, I didn't want to do the swastika. They introduce him by giving this lecture in Vienna and it pulls into his watch and underneath the engraving is a swastika. He felt like that was really too broad and cheap. He didn't want to do it, but they needed they needed something to convey to every member of the audience right away what this guy stood for. Fascist. He is a fascist and that is what he wants. He wants capitalism and communism to fail so that fascism can rule. And what's hilarious is Tom Clancy, who has the answer to everything. He's just such a know-it-all throughout the commentary. He's like, are you kidding me? There is no fascism left in Europe. And the director's like, I think it's on the rise. He's like, no, no, no. There's like 12 of them. They'll never come back. <laughs> um, okay, Tom. Be glad you're dead and missing all of this fun. But yeah, knowing more about him would make my investment in this plot greater, is all I'm saying. And that he has this nuke, and yet we're going to spend all of this time with Nemirov was confusing to me in the first half hour of this film. Because I'm like, Nemirov, is he a new president of Chechnya? I mean, I was really trying to put together all the people and countries they were saying. And then I realized by the second half hour, oh... Our bad guy doesn't really matter. It's all about Nemirov and the U.S. Well, I mean, I think he's he's using that. Again, like, if you know two people hate each other, think about uh, Fistful of Dollars in the way that Clint Eastwood was able to, sometimes without him even getting shots off himself, just set the other two warring factions to, to kill each other off 
I think we're to think of Dressler as somebody who thinks he can engineer that. If I set off a bomb on American soil, they will only conclude there's no other explanation than it's this guy who, yes, gets into political hot water because he gasses or seemingly gasses Chechnya. Yeah, is Dressler paying, like, these Russian generals? I guess he's paying these Russian generals to go rogue and do things. Wish it were clearer. Without the Russian presidents. Yeah, I... I think that's what's happening at least like the the gassing of chechnya that has to be dressler behind it right i mean yes it's something you really want to underline it's something you want to like the problem is there's so many scenes of people you know who the important guy is and they're sitting around in rooms with other guys and that's true of the president it's true of the bad guy and it's like i don't know who the other ones are and what they're doing and yeah dressler has some other nazi i think like choked to death i don't know why i don't know what i'm supposed to get from the scene but it happens again if you went with the book concept it was like the UN of villains where we'd have a Native American and the German <laughs> and yes, there would be a Muslim extremist and all of that stuff. Would that be better? I mean, it'd be more campy. I think you could understand that more in a Bond way if they did that, but it would be very silly. I think it would be hard to make it seem credible. I think if this is going to come out post 9-11, that's a way to go. Like, I, I think I'm going to go, oh, okay, so this isn't actually about what's going on today. This is just a, a campy James Bond film. I think I would go with it more. The fact that, I don't know, you put Clancy's name, I'm going to take it a little bit more seriously because that's what comes with the territory. I'm going to try to line this up with real world events more. So the fact that, yeah, Dressler isn't a Bond villain enough and there isn't that UN of villains going on, like maybe that would help me just to, to take this as kind of a mindless action film more. I tend to agree. I just, this isn't really an action film in any way. It's a thriller and a low boil one at that for this first hour. Can I just point out like a scene that I think is really well directed? We have Affleck returning from his trip to Russia and he gets in these tickets to the soiree, black tie with the president. And they just have that scene before anyone knows what happens where everyone in the room, they're all important and they all get their beepers and their cell phones going off at the same time. Like that shows me that this director has some skill, maybe more so than Philip Noyce demonstrated at least in patriot games where i'm feeling like it's a better directed movie and so i'm a little bit more engaged than i have been sometimes and i'm liking some of the interplay between ryan and cabot my favorite moment in this film i do think is not an action scene but when cabot is on the plane and he's like to ryan just tell your girlfriend what you do she'll think it's hot and just the deadpan stare he gives whoever the extra is sitting across from him as Jack Ryan tries to be like, I'm in the CIA, I'm going to Russia, and the girlfriend just hangs up on him. I, mean, I thought that was a really funny scene, and this this was Cabot's way of making up for it, was the correspondence dinner. He got the tickets of Leah Schreiber. Right. Another recast. John Clark. Yes. We, we saw this character last time. I guess they felt like bringing back Willem Dafoe would be too confusing, too old, Liev Schreiber had worked with Ben Affleck in a horror movie I didn't see called Phantoms, Dean Koontz adaptation. Oh yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, so I guess they figured they kind of look similar and maybe they already play well off each other. So this will be the new pair up here. And I like Liev Schreiber. I think that he he is what I wish Jack Ryan were more like. 
he is more of the daring, active character, more of the James Bond. He's going to figure out ways to get... I mean, the analyst goes over there, asks some questions, notices some scientists aren't there, and goes home. I mean, he's the one that goes and gets cigarettes so he can charm an old lady and look through her phone and find the lab where things are happening. Like, that kind of stuff is what I wish Jack Ryan were doing. Yeah, I, I like Schreiber usually in a film. I don't know. He feels a little too stiff for this. Uh, maybe because I'm wishing Defoe was back because I, I just like him more as an actor. He's not as good as Defoe. Yeah, the Clark character, it, it feels like it should be different than Ryan because he is more, I mean, we'll see it in this movie. He's more willing to pull the trigger than Ryan is. And, and so, I don't know, Schreiber just, he plays it a little too low key for me. I wasn't quite sure what to make of him, and he does play it, in my mind, totally different than Defoe, because Defoe felt like a soldier to me, whereas this guy, he didn't want to be doing wet works anymore, and he wasn't a soldier, he was an assassin, and he was an assassin who was given a desk job. He was tired of the killing. Arnie, the, the United States does not assassinate people. It's against the law. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. In this movie, in the fictional universe. Also in the real world. <laughs> I just didn't see him as the same character, which is why I was confused that he had the same name. It feels like a totally new character that we're introducing. This does feel more like a James Bond thrown into a Jack Ryan film because this guy's going to go undercover, going to pretend to be other people, going to break into places and kill people. He feels like he came out of a different movie to spice this one up. Yes, I, I agree. He feels like a script doctor solution to like, how do we make some of these connections happen? And I don't know. You know what? Here's what I would say. Jack Ryan is usually at his best when he's paired with a co-star that, that does have other attributes that fill in the gaps of him. I mean, I'm thinking about Baldwin and Connery or, yeah, last time Ford. Willem Dafoe made him better. I don't feel like Liev Schreiber is making Ben Affleck better. He's not upping his game when he has to fly back over to the Ukraine and, and go on this mission. It just feels, yeah, kind of sloppy and half-assed. And it's frustrating, too, because we already know what they're finding out. Like, it'd be one thing if they were discovering things we didn't know, but we know very well that there was a nuke. It got bought up by this German, and now it's on a boat headed to Baltimore. And if you saw the trailer, you know what it's going to do. So it does feel like this whole first hour is a whole lot of setup, and our main characters figuring out what the audience knew before the lights went down. Yeah, and I had a similar problem with Hunt for Red October because they're all playing it like, oh, we don't know if Sean Connery is really defecting or is he really trying to start a war, but we know. Like, they've given that all away, and yeah, this movie has that same problem. Like, I know this new president of Russia didn't bomb Chechnya. Like, they've given too much away. I'm ahead of the characters, and I don't know. You usually don't want to be ahead of the characters in a film. Like, now you're just being bored. Here's what I will say, though. If I look at this movie in the way that I most enjoy it, as a disaster movie, that's par for the course. The first hour is always setting up everything so that when the volcano erupts or the earthquake happens or whatever, the dominoes can fall. And so all of this, I mean, even the director on the commentary said, I feel like we had to do all of this to set it up to get to the place where the movie really takes off in hour two. And so I can now really get into the movie and enjoy it once we're dealing with the fact that we know there's a bomb in a cigarette machine in the basement of a Baltimore arena. 
Do they still have cigarette machines in 2002? I know in California you couldn't find them. <laughs> I don't think they did, but I imagine at a football game, somebody would be like, oh, yes, I can't believe it. <laughs> this is the Super Bowl, right? Or is it just a football game? The director said that he didn't feel like he had the budget to pull off the Super Bowl, that people wouldn't believe him. It is the Super Bowl, but he just didn't feel like people would believe that this, on their budget, that this was the Super Bowl. He had a anti-smoking crusade to go through. If you'll notice later, one of the characters dies in a car bomb because they press the cigarette lighter button. And so he just kind of worked it into the theme that smoking is bad here. I never thought it was a Super Bowl. I never took this as January, <laughs> but... I did like when the president goes out, there's equal boos and applause. That made me know that, I don't know if that was put in in post when, you know, or if they were looking at how divisive the country was after the hanging chads and the lawsuit that determined George W. I mean, this is definitely a Democrat because he's talking about smoking pot to win California. Yeah, it's a blend. But yeah, I, I, the decision to have equal boos and cheers, it's just I, the director, he said, I felt like that was what would happen. There's always half and half. Rarely is there a figure in modern day times that everyone beloves. It's worth pointing out one of the reasons why this subplot, and that's what I'm calling it, is so marginalized in the Tom Clancy novel is because it was already made into a movie. And the book even calls it out. The terrorists are like, did you ever see that 1977 movie, Black Sunday, in which they put a bomb in the Goodyear blimp and try to blow up the Super Bowl? It was made, it was, uh, I believe, Robert Shaw after Jaws was the villain in it. It was okay. Uh, hazy memories here, but do you, have you guys ever seen it? Do you know it? Is it a reference? No, I haven't heard of that one. I haven't heard of it either. Okay. Well, I, I, it was something I was thinking about and comparing this movie to. And again, I just like the disaster element of that. Like that to me is just kind of a fun, well, fun's maybe not the right word, a very tense scenario. Forget 9-11. Forget all about what our country was going through. Just thinking of it as a disaster movie, it's a good hook for me. Here's the problem if, with this being a disaster film, and I don't blame them if they cut stuff out that was filmed, but they don't want to show the disaster, and I don't think audiences want to see the disaster. Yeah, we're going to see a mushroom cloud. We're going to hear a sonic boom. We're not going to see the explosion. We're not going to see the bodies. We're going to see some storefronts on fire later on, but we're not going to get that disaster movement again. In 2002... I wouldn't want to see that. 9-11 was still way too fresh and on everyone's mind. Did they have an explosion? I wondered this myself. Did they make it an artistic choice to show the shockwave and the mushroom cloud and not show us the big boom? Or was it a 9-11 seeing the big boom might remind people and give people PTSD from 9-11? And so we're going to cut the first explosion. Yeah, the director said that it was always my conception to fake you out. We all know the bomb could be coming. We have this great moment where, you know, Affleck's been calling. He finally gets through. And Morgan Freeman has that amazing look where he stands up and he looks at all the crowd. You don't need to see them die because you know they're dead. You see everybody in the audience cheering, wearing the funny face paint and all of that. The players on the field. And he knows everybody standing here is about to be destroyed. And I and the president of the United States, maybe too, his dying act is to get this guy out of there. And then we cut to an aerial shot. We just see a, a large landscape of the stadium and all the downtown skyscrapers. And we think we're going to see the mushroom cloud then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking right at the stadium. The stadium wasn't mid-frame. I'm like, are they trying to fool us? And it's going to go off in our periphery. And then it never went off. I was like, wait, what? 
that's what the director wanted to do. You think it's going to happen, and then you go, oh, maybe maybe it's not going to go off. We cut to this anonymous hospital shot, and it gets me. I jump. I did not think that all the glass was going to break out, and the TV would go out, and, and the moment would happen in a second. It was a good jump scare. Okay, so that was his intent. I actually thought it was good. I, I thought we wouldn't see anything. When we saw the mushroom cloud, my guess was it wasn't a 9-11 thing, but if we hadn't seen the mushroom cloud, I definitely would have chalked it up to that. But when we saw that, I'm like, maybe they were just trying to scare us and give Kathy something to do. She was flung against a wall. <laughs> oh, you thought that maybe that it wasn't nuclear. You needed the cloud to, to confirm that. Oh, no, I knew it was nuclear. I'm just saying that the shock when Kathy gets flung across the room was surprising to me. Yeah, to me, it's a very effective kill scene, and we don't need to see the bodies. I mean, you can watch the day after and watch those radiated skeletons if you want. I feel like sometimes that doesn't work. But again, you're, you're saying a disaster film. Not You don't even get a scene like the opening of Terminator 2 with the nuke going off and the buildings being consumed in fire. Again, if you say disaster film, part of the fun of a disaster film is seeing the disaster and seeing that death. Again, I don't want to see it in this movie, so I would be cautious calling this a disaster film. Well, I mean, you want to have the moments where, like, the president's motorcade flips and how's everyone inside and it's so quiet like if you notice like all the dialogue and even the music kind of goes out here like i think it's skillful i'm actually going to say i feel like the handling of this moment was really good i think it's as tasteful as they could have made it with the material they were trying to pull off and the director apparently consulted experts and was like would there be cell phone service would the towers be knocked out he said he did all that research and apparently if this happened he feels confident that jack ryan would be able to still be getting on his cell phone and that it is contained that you can actually avoid the fallout that it is actually a very narrow cloud and if the wind is blowing in the opposite direction then everyone else running around will be okay yeah i was wondering about jack a couple of times when he's in baltimore post explosion i'm like where exactly is he is he just at the stadium looking for the vending machine i mean that has to have radiation I mean, he's going down to the docks, yeah. He, he's nearby. And who set off that vending machine? Did just some schlub, like, go to buy a pack of camels and accidentally set it off? Was there a timer? Like, I see some wires connected to a pack of cigarettes, but I was never sure how it went off. I'm not sure myself. I would assume it was on a timer. I don't... It's hard for me to believe that so, it, it could have gone off at any time that someone put a quarter in the thing. I really thought it was waiting for somebody to buy that pack of camels. <laughs> That's how it looks. <laughs> yeah, it does look that way, but... I think that's for the audience to understand what's going on. It's not, I mean, obviously you'd hide that wire, right? You wouldn't have it <laughs> sticking out that way. Yeah, it seemed really obvious. I want the pack of camels right next to the red and white wires. <laughs> yes. Do you hear a beeping? I hear a beeping. <laughs> But anyway, again, so now, second hour, we're now in an irradiated, half-blown-apart, although, again, I think it's obvious from the, whenever we get to the aerial shots, most of the city is intact. 60,000 people are in that stadium. That's a huge loss of life. But most everyone else, including the president, is alive. We lose Morgan Freeman. Yeah, Cabot's not doing well. He's being rushed to some rushed-up hospital. Yeah, triage that where his job now is just to pass on his cell phone and Jack Ryan can start texting. It's mentioned that they have this Russian contact 
named Spinnaker, and Spinnaker is going to be their inside man, kind of like Cardinal. I mentioned that as a character in some of the earlier Red October, Tom Clancy storyline. An inside man that can tell them what's going on with Russia so that Jack Ryan can be confident that it isn't the Russians when everyone else getting on Air Force One is saying, let's fire the nukes at Russia. Well, the president is at least wanting to be sure. He's like, let's be 100% sure. And I don't know why they never use that hotline to Russia and be like, did you do this? Yeah, they just text message each other. Yeah, that's how it's done. That's a Clancy. This is how it is done. Don't argue with my ability to know the technical side of things. No, but they don't even do that. They don't text each other initially. The president has to wait for the uh, strike at the aircraft carrier. Yeah, hey, at least I knew why an aircraft carrier got struck in this film on, like, Red October. Like, I understood it this time that, yeah, things are escalating. Again, there's all these rogue Russians. There's a whole Air Force troop that's just going to go out, and this Russian president, Nemirov, he doesn't want to look weak, so he's not going to say that he's lost control of his military. But, again, is Dressler behind this? Are these just loose cannon Russians that want the Soviet Union back? I'm not 100% sure. Well, the attack on the aircraft carrier was one of the dudes we saw hanging out with Dressler. He's on a phone call with Dressler like, I'm going to certainly make it worth the money you paid me. (laughs) Okay, I had a hard time keeping track of Dressler and who he was talking with. That's because there's not enough time in this movie spent on Dressler. Yes. (laughs) And boy, that was a criticism that Clancy couldn't let go. Sounds like you guys are in agreement, and I am too. The book makes it so obvious that Russia, in losing its communist identity, was uh, losing the generals, and that there could be a real insurrection, a real coup, and this president could actually see his soldiers turn against him, and they could be the ones doing this. The Russian president could believe that his men actually blew up the Baltimore arena was something that was established in the book. Yeah, if this movie came out in 1992, I'd be totally on board. I still remember, though, there was always the question about specifically a Russian nuke because Russia had fallen. Would Russian nukes get into the wrong hands? Would a Russian general or a terrorist get one of these Russian nukes and use it against the U.S., even if the government didn't? That was a big discussion in my political science class post-9-11. Yeah, can someone get their hands on a Russian nuke, a terrorist? GoldenEye was kind of like that, right? Like, there was all the concern about, like, yeah, now that the people in power are out, is anyone minding the store? Is anyone monitoring those nuclear silos? And and again, that was in the book, heavily in the book. And it isn't in here enough for us to believe that this Russian president feels like he is facing a coup. That would be something if he actually believed that uh, he had to fight his own men and that he is responsible. I thought that's where this movie was going to go. Like, you were going to get this rogue aircraft team that's going to strike an American aircraft carrier, and then Nemiroff is going to send, like, his loyal aircraft people to go shoot down those rush. I really thought that's where this film went. I didn't remember a whole lot about it, but that's what I would have put my money on. Yeah, Clancy says it too quickly devolves into fire nuclear weapons when that would be the last option for anybody. Is it movie shorthand? Did the movie cripple itself by going there too quickly? I think they're trying to tell the least confusing story possible. See, I I do think they jumped to the nukes awfully quick. I mean, this is mutually assured destruction. And the president, initially, I I liked his restraints, but this escalation where it's just step by step, they're upping each other 
it seems like this wrestler has an almost psychic level of knowledge as to what they're going to do and how they're going to one-up each other and the escalation that will occur to within six hours of a unknown nuke going off in the U.S. that Russia and the U.S. are going to just nuke the hell out of each other's civilian populations. It's it's too clean, you know? It's I, I mean, I guess the one thing this film did get right is that the U.S. would accuse someone falsely of weapons of mass destruction. That's the <laughs> one thing they got right with 9-11 here. Yeah, and I think it's right for the villains to prey upon Cold War fears. We hadn't changed the mentality yet. We hadn't been able to recognize the danger of the rest of the world. I think that was the point of the book. And so... Yeah, that that we would still be focused on Russia, maybe even in 2002, although we weren't. I mean, it's worth pointing out, I don't remember anyone ever seeing Russia when the towers fell. I don't ever remember thinking that we had any idea that it was anyone other than the person that attacked them in 1993. We had had a decade to process that the America had other enemies aside from the Soviet Union. But... It's easy to lose track of Jack Ryan, especially once the nuke goes off. He's running around, he's talking to people, he's trying to get attention. Nobody wants to talk to him. He's flashing his badge at... He's not flashing his, he has Cabot's badge that he took off of him when he died. Oh yeah, that's how he gets into one building, but I'm talking about when he goes to talk to the people who are salvaging the uranium and things, and have the robot that goes in there, he's flashing his badge, and they're like, you're gonna have to wait with everybody else, and... Nobody cares about him. They seem to figure that out very quickly. That is like American plutonium that was in that bomb. They do. Like within minutes of discovering the plutonium. I, maybe that's realistic. Did Clancy say? He didn't comment in terms of like how this movie portrayed it. I'm sure he would swear by the way that the book lets it come to be known. That it's accurate. Because that's his whole thing. Is that He did the research. He's confident that they would be able to know exactly where any plutonium released would originate from. And that's the point. Uh, how fast do you get there? I mean, this movie is filled with that. I mean, Jack Ryan is like jumping all over the world in a matter of hours. Yeah, you would think that it's time travel is happening here. He's just so able to get from to and fro. Keep in mind, like Baltimore, everyone should be like running. There should be like massive people running through the streets and... He has it relatively easy to get down to the docks and battle some Bond hitchmen that's trying to choke him with chains. Yeah, and it's not just Ryan that seems to be able to just quickly travel. I mean, Clark, at the same time, he's, like, going to Israel. He finds the guy who sold the bomb, who's now dying of radiation, like... Who did remind me of Gutenberg from the day after. Mm, yeah, <laughs> true, true. Yeah, but just, like, feeding Ryan, like, all these details that he needs, it moves very quickly. And here's, I'm of two minds. As a moviegoer, I would probably complain that this feels rushed and underdeveloped. But as someone that read that book, I go, how skillful <laughs> that you were able to go through all of that and find the necessary moments to explain the story. And to me, this is just a much better president story than Jack Ryan's story. I don't really care about Jack Ryan, even though he's going to be the one to stop this. I'm really into the Russian and American escalation scenes. I'm loving all the character actors who are coming out to give advice to the president and to Nemirov. And as they're going up, I know that this is not going to end with the destruction of all life on Earth because it's an American summer movie. But I actually felt myself wrapped up in those scenes. And every time we cut to Jack Ryan, I'm like, 
Yeah, can we get back to the exciting stuff? Well, I'll agree with you here that I do like the strategizing stuff. What is our response going to be? And if we hit these nuclear sites, like, yeah, open this movie with Baltimore getting nuked and then have it be a slow burn. Like, how do we respond? Like, I do find that stuff interesting. It's just the fact that it's just moving so fast. I I don't know. You never get to really enjoy any of these details. It's like, we got to get to the end. Yeah, I feel like they made a choice to include more of the book than they needed for me to enjoy what this is really about, which is that someone set off a bomb at a football stadium, and now we have to scramble to stop the world powers from going to war. They could have had Act 1 be the bomb go off. They didn't have to build to one hour. They could have really just gotten that bomb there much more quickly and forget all of this other stuff, but uh, it wouldn't be Tom Clancy. Yeah, you discussed, like, Volcano. I'm pretty sure the disasters really started around the 30-minute mark. Act 1 is setting up the people, and then Act 2 starts at the 30-minute mark, is dealing with the disaster. Here we wait the full hour for the nuke to go off, and then it feels like we're in a totally different movie than we were getting there. Yeah, the 70s disaster movies always took a little bit longer. They were always like, let's just milk this for another full hour. So that's what I mean about, like... Yeah, let's parade all these TV stars we got to be in this film. Or I got Godzilla movie. Yeah, like it takes an hour for Godzilla to always show up. He's fashionably late. So I guess there's a part of me, what I'm saying is when I consider it in the tradition of those films, which I have a soft spot for, I'm okay with all of these multiple flaws that you guys are completely right for calling out. This movie's got multiple pacing problems, but I'm kind of getting served because I like some of this, some of this dashing around in the chaos of a bomb explosion. The only thing I really enjoy is when Clark and Ryan team up to go and visit the place where the bomb was built and Clark gets picked up by two random guards and Ryan saves their life. He won't shoot. He's able to speak with talking more foreshadowing. He's able to speak Ukrainian and they have to take their shoes off. And I thought that was clever because it's so damn cold out there that they'll get frostbite if they try to leave the building. That was where the complaint about the socks was. Yeah, the director was really proud about the fact that throughout this whole movie, Jack Ryan will never kill anyone. It was a personal mission of his that he would use his brain and never a gun. Do they mention, is he a Marine in this one? I guess they bring that up in every film. I I think they did say he was a Marine at the beginning. I don't recall. I don't remember it being underlined in any important way. But ultimately, yeah, he's going to make it to the Pentagon because, of course, that's right next door to Baltimore and he could just pop over there during all the (laughs) chaos of this. The police help him, right? The police, he's like, I need to get to the Pentagon. I can help you with that, sir. (laughs) No problem. I got nothing else to do during this crisis. My chopper is available to you wherever you want to go. If you want to go to Trader Joe's or anywhere else. (laughs) Can I just say, though, the desire for Ryan not to kill makes the fight with the Bond henchman in the shipping dock very unfulfilling because he gets no information from the guy. The police just come in and arrest an international terrorist. What exactly is that charge? He was so proud about that. The director was like, see, and this was a false alley and he got nothing out of this. I was like, hmm, some people would call that a mistake in the design of the story, (laughs) but not you. You like the fact that it's unexpected. I think that's what he was trying to say is I fooled you. You thought that this would lead to something and I I surprised you and anytime that I can surprise the audience pleasantly or unpleasantly uh, he's enjoying this moment <laughs> he calls it a surprise I call it a waste of time <laughs> yeah is he trying to surprise us too that again the, the day is saved by the gift of gab like Ryan just knows how to 
type a really good letter to the president of Russia. And Affleck is just not really good at delivering these Sorkin-like speeches. I just feel like this is where I was talking about he has to become the man, and I'm just not there. No, and the fact that he bypasses the president and the general helps him to do it. For reasons. Well, he doesn't want everybody in the world to die. I mean, that's a decent reason. I don't know if that's the person whose finger I want on the button. Again, I said this with Outbreak. I kind of like, we have protocols for national security for a reason. Yeah, it's just, I would have liked the movie better if he'd been able to get through to the president instead of getting through to Nemirov and the president sit there impotently watching (laughs) a chat bot. Isn't this about the president of the United States kind of looking like the dick, the bad guy, which maybe Clancy's happy about that because it's a Democrat. But this is all about appealing to the soft side of the Russian president and convincing him not to shoot the nukes. Like, yeah, it feels a little weird that you're saying the American president's the hothead here. Well, you have to buy the idea that Jack Ryan and doing all of his deep research that I never saw him do on this guy just understood this guy and he could connect with this guy because he had taken the time to really get to know him and that's what analysts do that's why they're important that's the function of the job is that they can see through to intent of our enemies I don't know. I feel like there's supposed to be an evolution there. And I Ryan never mistrusted this Nemirov. Like, he, he always kind of, like, said, oh, no, this guy's not the one doing these attacks in Chechnya. For a, a better dramatic story, I don't know. You want some kind of evolution that I just feel is missing in their relationship then. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, two hours of a guy saying, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And finally they do. And then he's right. <laughs> yeah. I like the scene where he's talking with Cabot and he's so closed minded, this Jack Ryan. He's like, I don't think it adds up. And Cabot's like, it adds up. You just don't like what it adds up to. I wish there'd been more of that. Yeah, I wish this had been a better constructed story. But again, my perspective is more forgiving because I read the book. And so that's, I think, always where I'm like, but they were stuck doing some of all fears. And so I give it a pass because I know how messy that book was. It was almost the worst Tom Clancy book I've read, except I really did enjoy it once it got to the terror plot at the football stadium. But up until that point, the 600-some pages it took to build to that... It takes 600 pages to get to the hour mark in this film? (laughs) The stadium attack is only the last 100 pages. Wow. That's why I really, like, you can see why I'm just like... Oh, they did such a skillful job of pulling it out. (laughs) Give it the Oscar for best adapted screenplay. (laughs) It is like when you adapt a bad book well, even if it's not a great movie, I guess I, I have the perspective of wanting to give a compliment. And doesn't Clark just kind of disappear at the end of this film? I'm like, where did he go? He'll show up at the very end for the Denouement, but I'm wondering where the hell he went during all of this Jack Ryan stuff. They do not give him as much to do, and he is not as good as Willem Dafoe. I don't know if one is because of the other. Like, did they have more Liev Schreiber and just decide he wasn't very compelling? Or did they just feel like... You know, it wasn't his story, and yeah, he gets reduced to a cameo at the end. I don't know. But to be clear, in the book, Clark is just the driver of Jack Ryan. He is just his chauffeur. And he goes to Mexico to, like, torture some people on a plane. So this is better. (laughs) 
And in the end, Nemirov, the whole time, Jack Ryan's like, he's not a hardliner. He's going to not try to be overly militaristic. He does stand down as a sign of good faith. The president, at the last second, like, the timer was up. The nukes were about to launch, but they stopped that at the very last moment. And then we jump. They're friends. They're signing a treaty together. They're like, oops, we were fooled. Yeah. I wonder if the Air Force One press corps had a field day with that story. How else would you dramatize an analyst that it just is about somebody that like looked at all the data and had to tell you that this is why you should think this way? We've said it, Stuart. You start this movie off with Baltimore being bombed and you have it be a two hour Andromeda strain of analysis and strategy. Look, it sounds kind of boring, but I also if it's done right, I'd be kind of into that, too. I don't disagree. And I don't think this is a terrible way of doing it. I do wish the bomb had gone off at the half hour mark because there was a lot of repetition in that first hour, but it helped me get to know the president and his cabinet. Yeah, I agree. It's if we must have all these characters, the first hour did at least pinpoint and identify the most salient people from the novel. Again, I go back to that 50 character, 800 page monstrosity. And again, (laughs) it was agony to get through that. And I do like the montage of death at the end. And the one guy who makes his driver get in the car and start the car and the driver's like, oh, thank God I didn't blow up. And then, as you mentioned, it's the cigarette lighter that blows up the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's very Godfather-esque the way that it's all done to opera. And, uh, you know, I don't know that it's the director working at his full capacity, but it feels skillful and condensed and shorthand and like Patriot Games, they're going to end on Kathy and Jack, right? Like that's where we're going to try to get the audience to see an ending here. All of that death happens in the background. Jack is not blooding his hands. It's all about him getting engaged, right? And finding out who Spinnaker is. With the joke being it was the Russian that was showing them around the nuclear lab and and giving them false information about why the scientists had left. I knew I had seen Spinnaker at some point in this film. I just didn't remember when. I wish they would have called it out a little bit more because I'm like, oh, he showed up at some point. I would have paid more attention if I knew that was Spinnaker or or if he had a role, I'd think back on it and, and piece things together. But again, so many characters, he just blends into me. Yeah, the Russians were not nearly as well defined as the Americans in this. I mean, neither are the Nazis who are the main bad guys in this film. Yeah, it's kind of a surprise like... Oh, it was the cook in Hunt for Red October is a surprise. It's like, oh, yeah, I think I remember that. Anyway, I'm glad they're getting married, I guess. Well, are you glad this movie's over? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Sum of All Fears? Jacob. You know, Stuart, you brought up this thing with disaster movies and just our personal biases. You read the book, and so you're like, this is a great adaptation. And what do we bring into a film when we see it? And I didn't want to say this film's name because it was a very contentious podcast, but I was thinking of... Spielberg's War of the World. Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, when you have a little girl say, is it the terrorist? I'm sorry, I lived through 9-11. I am going to make that connection and not be able to see it another way. And I feel like that's kind of the problem with this film for me is I know when this film came out. I know what my feelings were about this terrorist bombing and what I would was expecting out of a film post 9-11 about terrorist bombings in America. And so it, it's hard for me to get over the fact that this is about Nazis, and Russians. And again, weirdly in 2020, that's kind of relevant again, sadly enough. But I, I think even today, 
today you would play that different. Nazis and Russians and geopolitical warfare and all that. He wouldn't have to be Austrian, I'll say that much. Yeah, he could be American. That's the problem. But I just, that is part of my problem with this film is that it's so tied to that event and that this is... This is not the sum of my fears after 9-11. I wasn't worried about the Russians. I wasn't worried about the Nazis. I was worried about dirty bombs and anthrax and more terrorist attacks and, and planes and all those kind of things. And it's just, this doesn't match that. So as a film commenting on those times, I think it's a total failure. And so what if I was able to get out of that bias? I got to do some algebra or something here and, and remove that factor from the equation. And, you know, it, what if my girls watch this? They didn't live through 9-11. That, that is something they hear about, but they, didn't, they don't have those connections. Right. And I think this would be a pretty generic thriller action movie. I don't know. It, it, we've talked about problems with the pacing, with the bad guys. I want to see more of the bad guys in this, this wrestler and, and try to really, I, I get that he's playing two sides, but like, yeah, we just find out towards the end that he's a billionaire Austrian whose dad was a Nazi. And so I don't know, he's getting revenge for daddy. I, I guess that's his motivation, but I just don't think this would be fulfilling. If you're able to take it out of that 9-11 context, I don't think it's a fulfilling action thriller type of movie for reasons we've discussed. So it's not a bad film. For me, it doesn't work as commentary on 9-11, which whether it wants to or not, that's its place in history. And so for me, I, I'm going to have to give it a pass. It's a, again, on the weaker side, but it's still a not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I hear you. And I've already mentioned that I agree the movie feels bizarrely focused on 20th century villains, Nazis, missile-happy Russians. They didn't meet the moment. This is not what we were thinking about in 2002. They could have commented on the arrival on the War of Terror. They could have been seen as some kind of Nostradamus, and instead they were backwards-looking. And that's my opinion of Clancy, really, is that he never had a sense of the world beyond his viewpoint of the Soviet Union. Like, he just, he can't let go of the Russians, and so it just... It clouds his entire ability to think about the world. Given the imperfection of the source material, I do want to stress that I think it's an expert adaptation. It's well-directed and selected in having to cherry-pick a very sprawling, unfocused book. And, you know, now that we're 20 years beyond 9-11 and Al-Qaeda doesn't feel like the threat it once seemed, I don't hold against this movie that it didn't feel like it addressed terrorism as it really was in that time. It's sort of this clunky, old-school disaster movie. Again, I, I do feel like, yeah, jettison the first 30 minutes of the movie and just kind of, like, shorten this movie to 90 minutes, and we have a sequel to Pearl Harbor, right? Like, it's an okay-ish, late-90s, Armageddon-ish disaster film. I can go with that. They tried to combine the best things about Jack Ryan so far. We hunted an important object. It was a sub, or now it's going to be this bomb, a terrorist attack on American soil, teaming up with Clark. He was my favorite thing about last week. And so I feel like they really did try to learn from what Jack Ryan had done in the past, take this difficult book, and I'll be kind and say it's this crusty Cold War relic that isn't very forward-thinking, but it was easy enough to watch, and I'll eke it over the line of mild recommend. I'll say it's a better Broken Arrow movie than Broken Arrow. I'd rather watch Ben Affleck and Morgan Freeman go after a rogue nuke than Christian Slater and fighting John Travolta. <laughs> but as I've said, I mean, the biggest flaw in this movie for me is that we never really find out much about this fascist Nazi bad guy. That we are being puppeted by someone who does not matter is frustrating. Yeah, you're right about that. And... 
Affleck is Affleck in this movie. He's not Jack Ryan. We've seen Jack Ryan. I feel like Harrison Ford broke out of Harrison Ford mode a little bit more than usual to try to be an analyst Jack Ryan. Whereas here, I feel Affleck is playing the same character he did in every movie in his early stardom, like before his meltdown with Gigli, and then he decided to come back as an actor. But from Armageddon to Pearl Harbor to Changing Lanes, this is the Affleck action hero role. And so I didn't care for our Jack Ryan, but I thought James Cromwell was really great as a president stuck in an impossible situation. One of the best Cromwell films out there is what you're saying. I like James Cromwell in a lot of stuff. I mean, I remember he was kind of silly in uh, Star Trek First Contact, but I mean, we've reviewed James Cromwell a ton, and I think this is one of his better roles, and the escalation between the U.S. and Russia had me in more suspense than the nuke in Baltimore did. I mean, the trailer and my memory told me the nuke was going off in Baltimore. I didn't know what was going to happen with the stealth bombers and the attack on the aircraft carrier. The logical part of my brain knew there'd be a happy ending, but the rising tension really worked for me. And I like the chemistry between Freeman and Affleck, even though I put the onus of it on Freeman. Once Freeman goes out of this film, Affleck is a non-entity to me. But like I said, when Freeman was teasing Affleck about his girlfriend and all of that, in the end, it was enjoyable enough when I was watching it. It's just thinking about it when it fell apart. But I thought there was enough suspense and everything to give it a weak recommend. But it really isn't for anything Jack Ryan. It's for everything outside of it in this movie. And aren't we saying that about this entire series? Isn't this the series being guided by no one, a sub with no captain? It does feel like... <laughs> Every film almost has a different Jack Ryan. I That's the crazy thing. Like, Harrison Ford got in there twice, and he's the most prominent Jack Ryan because of two times. I mean, imagine Timothy Dalton, if he was the most prominent Bond because he just did two films. Um, Batman? I mean, really? It's, uh... I mean, Bill got three films. Three, and Affleck got three. Did he? Suicide Squad. Oh, God. Okay. I was like, oh, I wouldn't say that's a Affleck film, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it does feel strange that, and again, I put a lot of this on the difficulty of making something true to the books. Jack Ryan was never a central figure in the Tom Clancy stories. So maybe things are going to get better next week because they're not going to adapt any more Tom Clancy novels. They're going to just take the character and say, let's write him an original adventure. Yeah, it took a long time for this movie to come out between them because we were going to review this, what, two years ago? Three years ago? 2014, so... Oh. Six years ago. <laughs> that was just yesterday, right? 2014? It wasn't six years ago. It feels like a l much re more recent that Stuart and I were having the debate on if we have a Jack Ryan series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize you were still living in L.A. at the time. Oh, yes. <laughs> But it's still 12 years between Jack Ryan films. Plenty of time for people to forget who Jack Ryan is. If they ever knew. As we reboot it again. And meanwhile, this Friday for Platinum Donors, talking about trilogy, Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland. I like that song. Yeah. I'm sure the movie will be as good as the song. I'm sure the movie can't afford the rights to the song. <laughs> That is available for Platinum Donors and our high-level patrons. You can find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for playing ball with me. And until next time, I'm sorry, we don't dance. Stop the launch sequence. 
Lassiter here. Flash override. Stop the sequence. Stop the sequence. Order the planes to stand down. Take us to DEFCON 3. And would somebody ask Mr. Ryan if I can use the phone now? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. Anywhere you can get that Boy Scout on a field trip look off your face? Not a chance. That's what I like about you. We hope you've enjoyed the show. A great day, comrades. We sail into history. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. So, you feel like a movie this weekend? Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. He's listening to it on his headsets, and he's just happy as a clam. And then all hell breaks loose. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Reciprocity. That's a clever name for it. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. When the world trembled at the sound of our rockets, only will tremble again at the sound of our silence. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I want the money in my account before I move an inch. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. You're either with us or you're against us, Jimmy Boy. Make up your mind. Oh, I'm with you. That's all I wanted to hear. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Oh, did they hit anybody's Instagram, Facebook, Hopscotch, Reddit, no, anything? No, none. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. When's the last time you slept? Wow. Associate produced by Jason Latham. If you disregard my counsel, if you keep running your business the way you have been, with your balls instead of your head, two things will happen. I'll quit, and you'll get killed. Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. Like Beethoven on the computer, you have labored to produce. Now Playing credits read by Brock. And a voice cried out from heaven, saying, It is done. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I said, speak your mind, Jack, the Jesus. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. 
I don't imagine the boys on the hill have proved this. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. But the day that I sell out my countrymen will be the day that I put a bullet through my own head. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Welcome to the new world, sir. Who would be if you can't get Harrison Ford and you can't? Well, come on, Benjamin Bratt, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Peter North wouldn't be bad. Peter North, the porn actor? <laughs> What's the goddamn Law and Order actor's name? Nolan North. <laughs> North, right? <laughs> you know, Nolan North might not be awful. I'm confused. Are you talking about Mr. Big? Yes. I thought he was, his name was Chris North. <laughs> I think we all agree that we don't know who the hell this person is. <laughs> Nolan North is in Uncharted. <laughs> do the video game? Nolan North. <laughs> it gets weirder and weirder. We're going to have a Sex in the City retrospective before this is all over. Nolan North is a, a voice actor I've never heard of. Oh, wait, no, he's in live action. Um, I don't know where you got that name. I Yeah, I don't know. where. That's why I just, like had to just be sure that I even knew what you were referring to. Because you do like your obscure actors. <laughs> yeah, you, I know. You probably, he could have been in, I don't know, Real Genius somewhere. <laughs> okay, I do not know why I have Nolan North on the, lo- on the mind. Um, we are talking about um, Chris Knopf. Chris Knopf. Okay. Okay. <laughs>